welcome to this episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Joe Redfern, and today we're talking about manga and anime, and in particular, their recent rise in popularity amongst young people. I'm Andy Williams, and today we have two manga and anime experts to illuminate this subject for us, Michelle Lyons and Jerome Mazendrani, who are going to explain exactly why manga and anime have grown so much in popularity. So let's take a listen now. So welcome to the Kids Media Club podcast, both of you. Could you kind of be, give us a brief introduction in terms of kind of who you are and what you do? Uh, and we'll start with Michelle first and then go to Jerome afterwards. Uh, I'm Michelle Lyons. I run a brand agency called Point North Brand Co. And I specialise in branding and strategy for the anime, manga, art and culture industries. Yeah, I'm Jerome Zandarani. I was the former managing director for Manga Entertainment Limited, which was uh, the UK's largest uh, anime distributor. Um, and in 2019, we became part of the Funimation Group, um, which is a Sony-owned company. And uh, at the start of this year, um, that um, that business was rolled into Crunchyroll LLC. So now... Uh, it's uh, Crunchyroll LLC is probably the largest commercial distribution platform for anime in the world. Um, and um, yeah, it was a little, played a little bit of a uh, little part in that. Uh, I worked at Manga Entertainment for 16 years and uh, I left the company last spring. And I am sort of known as a resident anime expert over here in the UK. I've, I've um, also worked in production and development of uh, anime uh, with uh, Cannon Busters is the best uh, executive producer credit I've got. But I was also involved in a in a feature anime film called uh, In This Corner of the World, which uh, won several Japanese Academy Awards in 2017, I think it was, and we won the Crystal Award at Annecy Film Festival that year. So I've, uh, yes, I've been really deep in the world of anime and anime community for, for a long time. Amazing. Thank you. Well, we're really pleased to have you here and uh, to chat about anime and manga a little bit more in a little bit more detail uh, and, and how the two are doing in terms of uh, their popularity with younger audiences and the increase in popularity amongst younger audiences. But first, uh, Michelle, could you just explain for people like me what the difference is actually between manga and anime? Uh, so anime is the animated version and uh, the manga is in book form, um, which is read from back to front compared to a Western book. And, and is anime a pure development from the, uh, the picture version in manga or do they have subtle differences in styles between the two? How would you tell one from the other? The anime is in colour and manga is usually black and white mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the actual scenes they're usually a pretty close replica. So the, one of the things that we've really been struck by is how manga used to be something that was more of a kind of a niche kind of cult um uh, animation and it's kind of really grown into having a lot of mainstream popularity and I just wondered what your thoughts were on why that was and what the audiences are really responding to 
Uh, and if we can go to Michelle first, then we'll go to Jerome afterwards for your answers on that. I think one of the things that has really helped it become popular is that anime and manga covers genres that Western animation doesn't. Um, so a lot of Western animation is um, comedy-based and maybe a few other genres, whereas um, in anime and manga you can get um, horror and all, all kinds of genres. Um, and also a lot of people have discovered anime through the pandemic because obviously everyone's using streaming services. Um, and originally in Japan, anime was sort of an ad advertisement for the manga. Um, so the anime was more digestible and then people would go and read the manga and that's sort of what's happening around the world now. Interesting. So just coming to you, jumping in, Jerome, at your time and Funimation uh, and Crunchyroll, did you did you see that trend emerging in that Western audiences picking up on manga and anime, and particular with um, with a view to young people? What did you notice during your time there? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a few years on Michelle, <laughs> so I've uh, I I came on board. Uh, I jumped into the world of anime distribution in January two thousand and five, and so that was the. That was where we were sort of midpoint in the explosion of um, home video distribution, DVD primarily for um, anime. That was the main way to get um, legitimate licensed um, content into consumers' hands, um, you know, across the, across the world, primarily in the English-speaking world in Europe and obviously in, in Asia. So um, when I came in at that point, um, Look, you know, you could already see that there was something going on um, in in terms of uh, anime becoming more popular, um, but it wasn't until the advent of streaming um, in around uh, 2005, 2006, uh, we started to see Crunchyroll become more and more talked about by the fan community. Uh, Crunchyroll, I think, at that stage weren't yet um, legitimate in, in as much as they, they didn't know when they started how to legitimately go and license the content. So they were redistributing, um, um, you know, digitised copies um, of uh, Japanese broadcasts, which fans were then subtitling. That's called fan subbing. So it was the sort of, um, there was this huge demand globally for more anime all the time to be on top of um, programming as it broadcast in Japan. That's where we get the term simulcasting from, which is really important in the whole um, growth of anime and the community building and the, the whole fan experience is that um, anime fans watch the content in a linear fashion, even though it's on demand and streaming, um, what the platforms do is they pick up the latest broadcast from Japan um, and get it onto the streaming service within a few hours now of it broadcasting in Japan. Um, and then the fans are tuning in to their favourite shows once a week. And we have that whole virtual water cooler moment, that commentary, that sharing of ideas, debate and engagement between the community, which is as important as the actual watching the animes, the talking about it afterwards. We see it with Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi, we see it with the new Marvel program. We see that phenomenon with those, with those fandoms. But um, to get back to the question, 
Um, it's been a re it's been a slow, gradual build, and then it's been hyper accelerated by technology. And um, and it's 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 um it's really fun to see. It's exciting to see it. Um, what Michelle said. I think that the the main reasons why that Mangrin anime is popular and popular with uh, you know, I, the audience I'd say is aged anything from nine to 50, you know, um, you've got, I think it's the design, the style, the look, the dy dynamicism of the medium of anime compared to Western cartoons, the content, it's more mature content. It's not always, there's a lot of great kids stuff and there's great preschool as well. But um, but they deal with complex themes. They deal in many more genres than just comedy, and 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 just action adventure. We have supernatural thrillers, romance, uh, all those things. The characterization is more complex, more realistic. Even though um, it's heightened genre storytelling with a huge fantasy influence, um, they deal with the characters visually and uh, in the writing as complex three-dimensional human beings. And, and I think it's serving a demand from a young audience that has not been um, met by a lot of people out of Hollywood or even European animation. They don't, there's a taboo treating teenagers and young adults like they're intelligent, mature beings, right? So I think that's a huge part of the, um, the reason. And then just these, social media and just this birth of a movement and this global community, you know. And do, and just touching upon that, I mean, two things that really struck me is one is your comment about how important the linear rollout is in terms of the programming and also how crucial the community is. Do you, do you think anime and manga kind of invite more interaction from fan from fans than maybe a lot of more sort of traditional mainstream stuff does. And do you think that kind of contributes to, to its growing trend? I'm really, I'm particularly struck by the fact that one of my nephews is very into kind of going on YouTube and watching how-to videos on drawing manga characters. And there seems to be lots of opportunities for, for, for fans to kind of almost get off the sidelines and join in. And whether you think that's kind of quite an important part of how much it's kind of grown recently. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've seen it with my own eyes because I have a 16-year-old son who sort of discovered Pokemon. He, he always knew I worked in that world as a younger kid. And, you know, and so he got a bit more exposure to anime than maybe other other uh, kids in South London, maybe. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I've seen that trajectory with him and the fan art. Michelle's got some really great insights on on, on the engagement in the community and it'd be great to hear from her. But um, I think anime and manga culture fills a role for belonging, inclusivity, creativity expression that uh, for my generation was filled by punk rock, skateboarding, rave and, and dance music culture. Um, and I find it infinitely fascinating that it's a audiovisual, like sort of more of a film and television culture that's created this new, right, this new yeah. sort of DIY um, um, sort of uh, phenomenon. I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before my for my 46 years. I have not seen some, uh, visual storytelling be so influential on 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 a sort of cultural level and creating yeah. a cultural movement. It's fascinating. 
I, I'm going to pick up on something that you um, you said there, Jerome, actually, and, and two words that I wrote down as you were speaking that I want to talk to Michelle about, given that you have a branding company working in this space, community and fandom. They are two things that are really, really important to today's kids, teens in particular. And it's interesting that it seems to be the, the message that actually uh, manga and anime were really early in this game of engaging the community, this concept of fandom and embracing kind of audience inclusion in the development of it. So given what you've known and obviously you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis with your um, role, Michelle, can you, can you pull out or identify which some of the elements of the genre that you know appeal to kids and young audiences today and that they're finding in, in manga and anime? I think a big part of it is that the characters are relatable and um, that's sort of hard to find in maybe the Disney princesses and and other characters like that that are really fantasy. Um, so I've noticed that it covers a more, like like a wider range of emotions that um, kids and young people can relate to. So um, it could be the more negative experiences as well, um, like grief and depression, anxiety, all these different emotions you will find in anime but it's also with um like the humor and the good times as well but mm -hmm. it's just a more well-rounded view of a person and I think that's what a lot of people like about it because they see themselves in it and so you know you sort of want to see more and it gives you a different perspective of your own situations. Mm. It, it sounds very much to me, um, you know, again, you're right. I think kids really respond to seeing themselves reflected in characters. But perhaps what doesn't happen in this world of quite sanitized animation for kids is that nobody is really quite brave enough to attack those issues. And like you say, things like grief emotions that might not necessarily be seen as very constructive, but are natural, are, are often shied away from. Uh, and so, you know, would you say that creators of, of anime have not been afraid to address those and that's what kids are really resonating with? Yeah, I think they know that, um, you know, people are just people and they're not afraid to see these things. It's actually more comforting to um, see a character that they can relate to and that is experiencing bad and good parts of their life compared to um, someone who can fly and save the world. And I'd like to kind of explore that a bit more in terms of kind of how it relates to people and that and the connection with community and fandom. Jerome, you kind of mentioned about punk. Punk is something that people discovered and kind of felt like they owned and it wasn't kind of mass marketed to them. So they felt a sort of sense yeah. of ownership over it. Yeah. And do you think that's an element of the success with uh, anime and manga that kind of people, in a way, because it's niche and because it was more cult, that that's part of its reason for its success is that a young community, a young audience can then discover it and feel like this is theirs. Yes, there's a strong sense of ownership from the audience. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. And uh, again, interestingly, it, um, there might be a 50, 55, 60 year old, uh, usually male, uh, self-proclaimed otaku, which is like the ultimate 
nerd um, crown thing for anime and manga culture. That um, so you have them, and obviously they they feel a certain amount of ownership. But what I am surprised by is that every year's new intake of audience and fans, often kids that have graduated from Pokemon, and that's how they've entered the world, or Japanese gaming, video games, and mobile gaming. Um, they feel that same sense of ownership. So to me, that's quite interesting because they're coming into now into a highly consolidated, corporatized um, form of anime uh, distribution. But one thing, everyone involved on the commercial side, um, like the Crunchyrolls, the Netflixes, Funimations, all, all, all of those organizations all over the world that are marketing, distributing, monetizing anime with along with their Japanese partners, um, we, we do not, with so you have to be so careful how you interact with the community. You you have to allow the community to have that ownership, right? And and ownership of those spaces and and, and actually the particularly the American uh, anime distribution companies like Funimation and and Netflix or later Viz Media. Um, we've had many battles over the last two decades with the um, license and copyright or IP owners in Japan to um, not, not fights exactly, but a, a struggle um, and, and, and perseverance to educate them in the different ways the fan community are going to engage with the content. Because it's not always what they anticipated. A great example would be when I started working with the Naruto brand in the UK in 2006, uh, um, we already were aware from our convention um, presence and visits that fans were cosplaying and making their own costumes of key characters from Naruto and they were making their own accessories and things which were, had actually been licensed out but were hard to come by in the UK. The, 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 what, what, a part of the production committee um, were exploring how they could send out cease and desist letters to cosplayers to stop them infringing their copyright. So that, that's a really good example of how, um, we, you know, we've had to try re-educate and guide the, the, the stakeholders, the people that own the IP um, from the Japan side over the years and, like, what, you know, how, how that audience is going to engage. And it's a good thing and a positive thing, and it is good for business, not bad for business. So we've had a lot of things like that. But uh, the last thing I'll say is the, the reason that anime continues to be popular and will continue to be popular and has this wonderful culture around it but, um, and this community keeps building is it's so inclusive. It's very inclusive. It's very diverse. It always has been. Um, the community existed before the commercial means of monetizing and distributing anime globally and uh, there is this tacit um, understanding between the commercial side and the public audience side that in, in order for it to keep flourishing and grow and everyone to get have that virtuous circle is you have you have to respect that don't go into fan spaces and try to monetize it don't throw your weight around try to support those um those creative things those fan conventions things that the fans have put together themselves you know in terms of, of branding, Michelle, and, and whether it's kind of a brand's identity or the design elements that you work, you, you know, work in, in and amongst, what are the elements of brands in this space that are really important, whether it is, a, you know, design motifs or a part of the identity? I mean, Jerome just mentioned 
inclusivity has been a key feature. Are there, are there some features within the brand that actually make them stand out as anime that you that are absolutely slam dunk that people would need to know of? Um, well, I guess there's sort of two layers to it. There's the actual um, companies that are distributing or creating the anime. Um, and then there's a sort of franchises themselves, which you can look at as brands, but um, it's a bit more complex. Um, so for the actual companies, I think it's important that they have really strong values that they stick to um, because I've seen a lot of fans who just aren't happy with the way they kind of run things or how they treat the, treat the staff. That's always a big one in Japan, especially. Um, and then for the franchises, I think it's the consistency and also creating a sort of in-depth world that feels like it's got some substance mm -hmm. to it. Um, but in, in any kind of brand, consistency is definitely the big one because otherwise it just makes the audience confused if, um, you know, it, it looks different in one place than it does in another or the tone of voice keeps changing drastically. And um, the only case I can think of where it would change is in different locations. So um, sort of localising the experience to suit different countries. Um, but otherwise, the franchise itself shouldn't have any major inconsistencies. Mm. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the term kawaii, which is kind of entered um, vernacular amongst kids. Now, interestingly, that's the cuter end of it, which, it, like you say, actually is, is the more kind of Western sanitised, perhaps more acceptable version. But are there any other elements of, of anime like Kawaii that you see are beginning to come through? I mean, I'd, I'd heard of Naruto when you mentioned that, Jerome, in terms of my kids talk about Naruto running. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, there's, so there's certain things, even to an old person like me, that are beginning to, to bleed through into popular culture. Are there other elements that you can see coming through cur currently? Oh, again, um, I'd like to defer to Michelle on that one. I think um, Michelle's keep keeps her eyes on these on trends and what's going. What have you? What what have you picked up on lately, Michelle? Um, I guess one of the things is the diversity. Um, so, in let's say One Piece, for example, there's every kind of person you could possibly think of. Um, you know, different sizes, different um, family backgrounds, um, men dressed as women, everything. And I think especially for like the LGBTQ community, that's something they really like. And so um, I think that helps with the popularity of anime. Um, but the one sort of downside is it doesn't seem to be very ethnically diverse and there's been a lot of controversy over that um, because some people are saying that it makes sense if the characters are based on Japanese people because that's where 
the material is coming from. And, you know, it was originally intended for Japanese audiences, um, but other people are saying, knowing that that content is going to other countries, um, shouldn't we try and make it more inclusive and diverse? Um, I mean, I personally have seen very few black people in anime and I have heard stories of people who felt like it wasn't for them because they didn't see themselves represented in it. That, that That's a, um, you know, in the entertainment industry in general, outside of music, that's a, that's a problem, the positive representation. But I think if you compare the last several years of television and film against um, the prior 30 years, it's, it's staggering. When you see a program like Bridgerton, that is, you know, set during, um, is it the Georgian age or the? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Set during the Georgian age, you have all these different actors from all different um, um, ethnic and racial backgrounds playing members, real historical characters and a lot of fictional characters. But as you know, you know, Queen Charlotte and whatnot, um, people that are non-white playing those roles. There's, there's no need to explain it. It's not written in. We're getting to that point now where, you know, um, it is what it is. We are seeing act. It's acting, by the way, right? So, so I think we're seeing that. That's really great. Um, what Michelle says about anime, um, I totally um, I have had a lot of experience with that with the representation issue because I was, I know for a fact as a marketer and distributor of anime that nearly thirty percent of the audience are uh, in the US, for example, and I'd say it's reflected the same in the UK are um, African American. Latinx in the UK, over I'd say 14 to 15 percent, maybe 20 percent of the audience are Afro-Caribbean, you know, Brit- Brit- Black British people um, with African heritage, um, um, British Asian, Muslim. There's lots of really good reasons for that. Re- that you know, obviously, um, anime with uh, you know the way a lot of people got their hands on anime in the late 80s, early 90s was through VHS rental. The way a lot of that audience learned about anime was through martial arts, live action Hong Kong martial arts, because manga was putting the trailers for Akira and Ghost in the Shell yep. on Jackie Chan films, Bruce Lee films and stuff like that. And there's always been a love affair with hip hop culture and urban black American culture and, and martial arts. And so it makes sense to me that that's bled through into anime. It's cool stuff, isn't it? It's cool. It's punk rock. It's dynamic. It. It's set in cities. It's dystopian, futuristic. It's a, it's uh, futurism and escapism. These are things that minorities, all different types of people, we have a huge representation in anime fandom and manga fandom of um, people on the spectrum. You know, the people that might be diagnosed with ADHD, with Asperger's, various types of autism, the, the whole spectrum huge representation for that audience in, in 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 the world of anime and manga so i feel like that that escapism and and and, and fantastical storytelling that's sort of grounded in reality and going back to michelle's point about the fantastic fully rounded character uh, uh depictions of characters in animation that anime does so well these are really important to marginalized communities people that feel different and whatnot. And it's also why the community is celebrated and acknowledged by nearly everyone now that, you know, how accepting and diverse it is. So it's great. In terms of the representation thing, we can't, it's hard to expect Japan, I'm not excusing it, but it's hard to expect what is essentially a monoculture yeah. to get um, positive depictions and representations right. Yeah. I mean, I was, 
Because yeah, I was thinking yeah. about what Michelle was saying. You can see how Japan isn't particularly diverse as a as a country, and so kind of the content that it creates may be a kind of natural reflection of that. But as soon as it starts to have more of an international impact, um, then it kind of it lands differently in kind of in different yeah. uh, places. It's to, yeah, it's going to evolve and change. It's yeah. uh, you know, Cannon Busters was the fir- first um, anime series produced in Japan entirely in Jap- Japanese from an African American creator, Lushung Thomas. He's actually one of the only non-Japanese animation directors who has ever made a series in Japan. So, I mean, he was breaking all types of ground with, with Cannon Busters. He then did Yasuke, which is the story of the, the Black Samurai, based on a, a real historical character in Japanese history. So he's done those two projects for Netflix. And um, I don't know what he's doing next exactly, but um, I'm pretty sure that he might have he might have another one coming to Netflix soon. So we have people like the Sean working in the space. We have... Uh, Studio Dutch Stagio operating in Tokyo, which is a African American owned and, uh, and co-owned Japanese animation studio from the Eason Brothers, who are these fantastic animators. That um, when they got their animation qualifications in the US, moved to Japan and were immediately working in Studio Pero, who make uh, Naruto. So they've got so we have those guys. So I think that representation that's going to change um, because Japan also has a massive deficit in animators, so they cannot. They can't meet the global demand. They can't make enough quickly enough. They, um, it's a pretty punishing lifestyle being an animator in Japan. It's not attractive to a lot of Japanese graduates who are moving into video games and whatnot. So Japan needs to do, the industry has to go through a lot of structural reform, um, and but also it's going to need to start bringing in more animators from around the world. Anime is going to change. And again, that's, that'll create conflict within the community because um, because provenance is incredibly important to the audience and authenticity. So how do we juggle how do we juggle representation, inclusivity and diversity um, with all these commercial and structural challenges? Um, in terms of uh, I'm, I'm interested in digging into the kinds of brands that are popular amongst kids and teens at the moment, drawn from either manga or anime. Um, Michelle, which brands are are white hot right now um, for people interested in finding out more about what's cool in, in manga and anime? Um, I know that Crunchyroll is really taken up at the moment. Um, I think they just merged with Funimation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've also seen that they're sort of updating their site and like really improving the experience. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting when I was looking through it the other day that they have a blog that they regularly update and there's all kinds of updates about the latest series and events. Um, so that's a really great place to kind of discover new anime or also mm-hmm. learn about what's going on. Um, which it, it's quite different compared to what I saw on Netflix because um, it just feels like it's really made for the fans, um, yeah. like it's a bit of a community space. Um, so, yeah, I think that's sort of a go-to streaming platform for anime at the moment. And are there any anime shows on there that, that you watch or you, Jerome, that you really like at the moment that you could recommend? Oh, 
we could we could we, that could be a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> Just one or two. Um, yeah, I, I was. I'll, I'll do a. I'll, I'll name drop some up and coming shows as well, which will probably be massive. I think in the next couple of years. Um, so uh, my favourite series, the one I recommend to everyone that asks me, you know, uh, they're really curious about the cult anime culture and they want to get in, is uh, Demon Slayer which has been in the news a lot. It's, um, I think it's the highest grossing anime feature film of all time now. Um, it was the last film I worked on before I left um, Crunchyroll in the UK. And uh, the movie had the highest um, UK box office ever for an anime film. So that was pretty cool. Uh, ending on a high note. So Demon Slayer's a series. It's also a series of manga. And um, it's set in the Meiji period. Uh, of uh, Japan, which is where they were modernising, and Western audiences might be familiar with the Meiji period if they've seen The Last Samurai, which was the Tom Cruise film. It's set during that that period where um, the emperor and the government were on this sort of modernisation, westernisation tip, and uh, it's partly covering the clash between that and the rural traditional way of life, with um, bloodthirsty demons, which are, who are kind of like vampires, they kind of behave the same way, but they're demons, and it's basically the demon slayer corpse, and uh, it's about a very strong sibling bond between um, a, a late, uh, like a older teenage boy and his younger sister. They're survivors of a massacre. Demons go and murder the whole family. This happens a lot in anime, by the way. Peril. Uh, invisible or dead parents. It's a big, it's a trope. So many anime and manga stories that the parents are literally invisible, it's not there, or gone. And um, so it deals with grief. It deals with um, compassion is a really important part of the Demon Slayer story. It's almost like the superpower of the hero of Demon Slayer is his compassion, even compassion for the demons that he has to slay. It's, it's really unique. And then it throws the whole kitchen sink it goes through, you know, one episode will go through slapstick comedy and kawaii segments where they do the super cute little cartoony versions of the characters when they're falling about. And then it'll have the most insane action scenes and sword fights, horrific, gory, bloody violence. So I'd recommend it. Generally, I'd recommend it for um, 14 and upwards. But I think, you know, um, it's fine to watch with a parent, you know, um, especially parents that are accustomed to cartoon violence and, and high fantasy stuff. So Demon Slayer is one I'd recommend. There's two seasons that are available on Crunchyroll and plus the movie and Netflix also streams season one. So it's really easily accessible. Um, and then I would say coming up over the next 24 months, the, the ones to look out for a Chainsaw Man. That's going to be huge. Um, Spy Family, which is out now. Uh, the brand new Bleach series. So Bleach has been on hiatus for nearly, I think about 12 years, maybe 10 to 12 years. So there's a brand new Bleach series coming. Um, one I'm excited about is an, uh, originally an American anime that was made by a, a company called Rooster Teeth Productions, Ruby. So it has its first Japanese anime adaptation coming out called Ruby Ice Queendom, and that's dropping in a couple of weeks. Dragon Ball's back with Dragon Ball Super Superheroes. So there's a new Dragon Ball Super film hitting cinemas this summer all around the world. It's going to be huge. And uh, and then a series that are, I'm not sure where the series is going. Wouldn't be surprised if it's Crunchyroll or maybe Netflix. And then uh, I think later in next year is the one I'm most looking forward to, which is Kaiju Number 8 which is all about giant, you know, 
we're all familiar with uh, Godzilla these days. So that's what a kaiju is, like a giant monster. So there's a giant monster anime coming. Uh, you can read it at the moment. It's a really good manga, but I think the anime is coming next year. So that those are the ones I'm most looking forward to. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Michelle, did you have any um, to add to that? Um, well, I don't know of half as many as Jerome does, um, but I know that there's, there's a series I'm watching at the moment called Fruits Basket, which is about the 12 zodiac animals. Um, and I know there's a prequel film coming out for that um, at some point, maybe this year. And there's also the One Piece Red film. I'm not sure when that's going to be out, but there's an event for it on YouTube in July. Um, which is like a two-day festival, just sort of getting the fans excited and getting them involved in various sort of contests on YouTube. Fantastic. Um, I had one other question related to something that Jerome was just describing when you were talking about um, the Demon Slayer series, is you were talking about the way it shifts gear from slapstick to action to tragedy to... Is is that typical of? Do you think feel that that kind of tone shift um, within one episode is kind of typical of anime, and and that's what makes does that make it kind of different from a lot of mainstream Western animation? Yeah, yeah, I do. You, you see it a lot. Um, those tropes, um, and I think to maybe a Western filmmaking eye or screenwriting eye, I might look undisciplined, but. Um, you know, uh, I've gone away from anime, come back to it you recently watching those shows and just appreciating it for what it is. It is different. Um, but I'd, I'd probably finish uh, this chat by saying, you know, I think the reason something that's so Japanese can travel so successfully um, abroad is because we live in a world where we are easily jaded and we're tired of being fed the same things over and over again. We want authenticity. We want local stories that travel globally. And I think that's just, it's partly about that acceptance. That is that, that's the style. That's how you write an anime, you know, and uh, that audience that really loves it, they, they accept that. They love that. They don't want it to be the same as say a Marvel six part TV series or, or, um, well, or an American animation. They might love like Rick and Morty. Uh, they, you know, they. It's the differences in the style, probably in the tonal style, that that that, that makes it valuable. One other thing that I wanted to bring up was a uh, gloomy bear, which is uh, an, something that has popped up on my radar twice in the last couple of weeks, uh, and I just wanted to basically again dig into why that's beginning to gain traction with fans. Um, particularly younger fans, uh, when it's this kind of great mixture of very cute bear <laughs> that looks quite bloodthirsty. <laughs> What's, what do you think the uh, attraction is with that particular brand? I think it's the juxtaposition between something that's, you know, kawaii, cute, plushy, that'll rip your head off and, you know, drink your blood. It's... And I think that it, it's that ridiculousness, and I think it's small children kind of love that, you know. Um, so it's, I mean, with this, it sounds worse than we're describing it because, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd say it's the juxtaposition, and it's, it's, you know, this is a separate part of Japanese pop culture, the mascot and character um, yeah. 
character licensing. Gloomy Bear doesn't exist in a manga or a book or a song or video or anything like that. Gloomy Bear is a, a purpose-built mascot by a, a Japanese designer who's produced lo loads of cool things. Um, and then, in a way, that mascot culture allows the consumer to help the creator build a narrative mm. around the character, you know? So it becomes a sort of a um, back and forth. And um, it's it's great when you work in licensing um, to, um, to have opportunities to work with the mascot creators because um, they're much more open-minded about what you can and can't do with the IP. They're not tied into any strict sort of canon or law or things like that. It's more of a... Um, you can have more of a creative uh, relationship with those creators working in the mascot space. And that's, I think, why things like Sanrio have worked so well globally. They, they really got, they, they got on the global rights management and character licensing bandwagon really early on and they seem to just click with, you know, particularly mm -hmm. with the American um, way of do, um, exploiting IP for, for consumer products. Mm. Interesting. That's great. Um, I mean, I think we've kind of probably covered most of the questions that we wanted to ask. Joe, did you have anything else that? No, no. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't realized the distinction between mascot creation uh, and, and how that's kind of separate to anime and manga. I had seen a couple of animations of Gloomy Bear that are just minute, yeah. minute long animations. I think a couple appeared on, on Crunchyroll and some on YouTube uh, on the creator's channel itself but again yeah. quite interested in um i guess it goes back to what michelle was saying at the at the um at the outset it seems quite crazy to us as as kids content creators in in the us and the uk and the west that you see something quite so cute as a, a pink plushy bear that has blood dripping from its mouth <laughs> because it's this kind of crazy bonkers juxtaposition of something that's good and bad but it does chime with this trend that we're seeing amongst kids is in that they don't want sweet saccharin sanitized things anymore. Actually, they do want to see their lives reflected back at them. They want to see a bit of raw authenticity, even when that acknowledges emotions that are typically not talked about in kids' media, like grief, like struggling with sexuality. Um, and, and I really like how anime and manga and, and creators in this space are not afraid to lean into that. And like you say, it's not without tensions, given that, you know, it comes across as being very uh, inclusive in terms of LGBTQ plus representation. But then there's also the tension of not necessarily having a different range of skin colors um, kind of um, featuring in content. But I do do like how um, it kind of, yeah, it isn't afraid to mash together something that is so very cute with something so very kind of to us it's got blood dripping from its mouth but actually it's what kids are seeking out which i think is really interesting yeah, yeah. absolutely i mean one one other thing that i kind of do you feel like that combination of kind of that juxtaposition and those tone shifts are we seeing that um influence in more mainstream kind of western shows now do you think yes yes yeah, stranger things i mean you know, I know we're 11-year-olds watching that, you know, as well as, you know, adult audiences. And I just watched the Doctor Strange film, the latest one, which had Sam Raimi directing it. He's a really famous horror director. And I was surprised by the free reign he got to, to 
show some pretty scary, horrific things. I think it probably comes with a slightly older age tag, uh, age recommendation than some of the other Marvel movies. But but again, yeah, I think, yeah, we are seeing that across different um, di- different media and spaces. And uh, um, is a is a trend. I, I think our kids, the, the young children are living, they're living with all this existential angst right now. It is so, it's so overwhelming. And I think that um, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, these outlets, cre- expressive outlets, creative outlets uh, uh, are flourishing that sort of tackle it head on, you know. Um, and I think the challenge for us working in the space and for parents is how do we, we yes, we want to acknowledge that, um, but we also do want to um, encourage, you know, the joy of childhood, the sort of the naivety, the innocence as well, it, and it's a balancing act. But no one ever said life's easy or being a parent's easy, did they? So <laughs> how do we do that? I don't know. Thank you. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation. It really has. And it's it's something that I think, you know, we will we will continue to see how this kind of almost this kind of tide that's moving west of the popularity of anime and and manga and that kind of aesthetic and style. I mean, you know, you look at K-pop, you know, kids, UK kids and US kids have embraced it with this kind of voracious appetite to want Mm. more. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because I think kids content creators like Andrew and I need to look at that and think, right, well, why are they embracing it? And I think we've discussed many of those reasons today. And actually that provides an opportunity for people like us to go, OK, we need to incorporate some of that. You know, maybe it's not all about Disney princesses and superheroes anymore. Actually, we should be thinking about our narrative and character development in a slightly different way. So I think it's yeah, I think our audience will really enjoy listening to this, actually. Absolutely. I mean, my big takeaway is just the absolute importance of fan-driven um, shows and content and how, giving the fans something to to kind of enjoy and kind of own, really. Uh, it's been great. Really good discussion. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michelle. Nice to meet you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate this episode and subscribe to the series. It would be enormously appreciated. And thank you very much for listening. We really hope that you tune into the next episode. Bye.